every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Come on around back, Arizona. It's Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. Rosie on the house, the outdoor living hour. First Saturday of the month, we have the Farm Bureau in. The second Saturday of the month, we have Certified Arborist from Save a Tree. Third Saturday, we have Jay Harper from Nursery Gardening, Master Gardening. Fourth Saturday, talk urban farming. What happens these random months, happens four times a year generally, where we've got a fifth Saturday. Opens the door to some new topics. It does, and we try and find different and interesting things to talk about the outdoor landscape. And we've got a special guest on the line uh, to talk about bees. But that's just one of the things we're going to be talking about. Uh, Arbor Day was yesterday. We're going to second segment talk about the significance and the history of Arbor Day. And then the third and fourth segments of this hour, we're going to be talking about Arizona soils for growing. And in particularly, growing grapes for wine and the history of the wine industry in Arizona and what it's done in the last two decades. So we've got a lot of fun and great guests lined up. Well, let's get started right away. We have David Charlesworth of ASAP Bee Removal. And the reason we brought David in specifically is because they try and do live extraction, unlike, uh, you know, the 5 million bees that died on the Air Atlanta tarmac waiting to be shipped to Alaska. Um <laughs> Yeah, Dave, we, David we, has a heart for we, saving them. We try and keep them alive. <laughs> yeah. David, good morning. Hi, how are you guys? Thanks for spending your Saturday morning. I know you're already on the job this morning. Yes, we are. We are. Yeah, and I gotta, I gotta, I gotta make a correction. We we do live removal. We also do extermination. That is, we are a licensed pest control company that does nothing but bees. So yes, there are circumstances where we do have to. Um, treat it properly and you know hopefully we have a happy customer at the end of at the end of it but glad to be here but the ultimate goal you know that's for y'all is that's the last uh the last resort we try and do live extractions and relocate them and how how does that process work because bees um they're very interesting we actually had a hive swarm in and we called for a live extraction by the time they got there, two hours later, the colony had completely moved on. They were yeah. they were in our trees, a uh, pomegranate tree, and I mean there was millions of them. It seemed like, and within two hours, yeah. just completely gone. Yeah, that would have been a swarm, and we're in right in the middle of spring swarm season right now. Um, that that would be a a queen traveling with the whole family, and they're in transition. They come from a hive very close by, a hive that's been growing all winter long. Um, that queen sees, that laying queen sees that she's running out of room. She will produce a new queen, and then that new queen will fly, will take half of those worker bees and fly and normally wind up in a tree or a bush, even a bicycle or a, a, the, the fender well of a, of a car or a truck. Now, from there... She'll send out scouts. They find that perfect nesting locations. Off they go again. So that queen will fly once to swarm and then once to nest. And it's usually pretty close to where the original hive was. But, yeah, that's uh, we try and 
try and save as, as many swarms as possible. Those are usually much, much easier to capture and relocate. Um, but it's a, it is a process. We had good, real good rains last summer. The monsoons were, were kind to us. We finally got some good um, summer rains and in the fall also. So it's made for an especially good spring for the bee guys because there's so much food. You know, everybody's got a swimming pool, but there's lots of food to be had because of the um, the good uh, monsoon uh, action that we had last year. We'd love but, to hear yeah, those bees. Hey, David, let me ask you a quick question. So yeah. if I'm a homeowner and I see like yeah. Romy did this, this bees and it alarms me, so I call you, is there a way for you to tell if it's a swarm or a hive before you come or do you just go ahead and come? How, how does that yeah, work well, on your end? If it's, if it's something that just showed up, you know, most times, uh, when it comes to a swarm, you will, you'll, uh, you'll see it and then you won't. But it, sometimes it happens so quickly. Sometimes they leave so quickly. You, the homeowner never even has a chance to even see them. Hmm. But if they show up and it's just a huge bundle of bees hanging on anything at this time of year, it's a swarm. An established hive, you'll probably see honeycomb hanging. If you see that, those bees have been there for weeks. Um, or months even. Uh, but that's the difference. You just bees on top of bees. Most times that's, uh, that's just a good indicator of, of what you got. That would be a swarm. Single queen with a couple thousand worker bees. And you were talking yesterday when, when we spoke about how the, the time a hive is, the longer the hive is there, the more likely it is or has been converted to an Africanized colony. Talk about yeah. the, the life cycle of the bee and how that happens. Yeah, when it comes to Africanized bees in, in Arizona, I mean, Phoenix and Tucson are, are the, the kind of the killer bee capital of the states. We have, we have more bee attacks here than any other state. And uh, it, it, it can be a, it's just something that sometimes the homeowner doesn't know what they have until... Um, they get too close to the, the hive entrance or they try and do a home remedy themselves, you'll find out real quick what kind of bees you've got because you're probably running from that area. But Africanized bees have a dominant gene that is, once it's introduced into a good domestic colony, um, it's in a matter of four, five, six generations, a generation being 45 days, the life cycle of a worker bee, once it's introduced into that colony, it's just a matter of time before they turn completely Africanized. And uh, we, we run into a lot of African. That's why I'm in business. Africanized bees keep me in business, keep me busy. Um, but we treat every one of them as if they're, before we get on the job, as if they are killer bees. Um, the guys are suited up before they even get into that area um, to look at that hive entrance or... Um, maybe even a home inspection. The homeowner doesn't know where the bees are. They just have a lot of bees at the swimming pool or uh, at the bushes if it's a blooming bush. But, yeah, they, uh, it, it, it's a real threat in, uh, in Phoenix. Uh, they, keep us, they keep us hopping. Now, what should somebody do should they find themselves in a swarm or being attacked by bees? There was an article out of the Casa Grande Dispatch about a gentleman who was walking along the side of the road and was attacked, and I don't know how the ambulance was notified that that was happening, but 
they were responded on site and the two ambulance drivers dived into the swarm of bees to pull the guy out, pulled him into the ambulance. They all, you know, at this point um, needed medical treatment from the multiple stings. But I mean, yeah, what, that that hive was probably disturbed somehow, some way. Um, they, they just don't attack on their own. There's they're provoked. Either somebody got way too close to the entrance of that, the hive entrance, or somebody chucked a rock or something at the entrance. And, and sometimes it's just it can be that simple and to set them off. But once once they're um, out and about, I mean, there's there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. You've got to be you've got to be prepared to take care of it right then and there. You just want to get out of the area as quickly as possible. I mean, that's kind of the bottom line with Africanized bees. Um, if you if you are involved in a in a bee attack, get inside the car, get inside the house, get away from from that area. And, and it might take, um, you know, running a quarter of a mile to, because Africanized bees, once they see that target, they're on you. And you just want to want to be able to get inside somewhere safe. Yeah, you'll probably take a couple of stings, but at least you don't have a thousand bees you know, breathing down your neck, but just to get out of the area as quickly as possible and inside somewhere, you know, um, watch the colors that you wear when you're out in, uh, if you're, if you're hiking, you want to wear um, neutral colors. That is gray, white. Um, you don't want to wear uh, black, dark and- brown, dark blue. Bears and skunks are a natural enemy and they, they will go for, for the man who has a black t-shirt on, way before they go for the guy who has a white t-shirt on so if you're out and about hiking wear a light colored shirt that always helps and i will tell you from firsthand experience do not wear a purple and gold lsu football (laughs) jersey they (laughs) love that that yellow (laughs) (laughs) that gold you know it's uh with africanized bees it really doesn't matter what you're wearing they're on you and you just got to get away as quickly as you can and so how do you do live extraction well, most, most of the live extraction um, that we do is going to be from uh, an accessible area, that is a water valve box. Most of those hives are, are going to be clinging to the lid. Um, if, they're not, if they're not mean bees, yeah, we can, we can sometimes do a live removal that way. Most of the live removals that we do in the spring are going to be swarm removals. Um, and then we, we uh, actually re- relocate out to the deserts with, with those bees. Uh, but it's got to be an area that's accessible. A hive may be hanging from a soffit um, off of a, a, a property. If it's completely exposed and they're good, good bees, yeah, we can, we can remove them alive that way. Um, but for the most part in Phoenix, it's really, really tough to do. You know, just to open up, say, a stucco wall or a, interior garage drywall uh, area you open you start opening that area up with a saw and they're not good bees you got to be prepared to treat it properly and uh, you know that's why you let the bee guys do the work and and uh, and not your <laughs> not your teenage son well just a quick but, uh, shout out to asap a couple years ago all our grandkids were at grandma's great grandma's house under a yeah. huge orange tree. And one of the kids looked up and said, oh, my gosh, there's a beehive. And it was huge. Called all the kids <laughs> in, called David out from ASAP. Yeah. 
and yeah. the tr the hive was so big and so attached that they did have to um, just get rid of it. And then also they had gotten into Grandma's house in the wall, and that had to, and she had honey dripping down the interior of her house on the walls. So thank you so much for that. That's a big big job. And then you have to put it all back together. And you guys did very very good job for us. Thank you. Okay. Well, you're very welcome. Yeah, it's been. Uh, I you'll find bees nesting in so many so many different areas. Uh, but it's uh, always a good idea, especially in the spring and the summer, to walk your property. Um, and and it's what you're looking for are a lot of bees in one location, coming and going from, from a water valve box or a barbecue, um, a roof line, a block wall. You see a lot of bees coming and going from that block wall. There's no food in there. There's no water in there. It's a nesting location. They're just like us, food, water, and shelter. That's what their day is about. Well, we appreciate you spending your time with us Saturday morning. It is bee season, so be aware and be on the lookout. Bees. Amazing creatures, really. They are. We we try and leave them alone. Mm -hmm. uh, the ash trees, they love the ash trees when they bloom. We, we'll go all year without seeing any bees, but as soon as they start to bloom, uh, or not even bloom, but just leaf out, the, I mean, the, the ash trees will buzz for three weeks nonstop, and then, then they're just gone. Mm. So anyway, we have uh, Arbor Day yesterday, and despite what you may hear, uh, we have more trees in America than we did 100 years ago, and a big part of that is the Arbor Day Foundation. Do you know Arbor Day started back in 1872 by a gentleman by the name of Julius Sterling Morton, and he just loved trees. His own property, had he had like 160 trees, and so he decided he wanted everybody else to love trees. The very first Arbor Day, guess how many trees they planted? Mm, one? A million. A million. And it has grown. They eventually declared it in Nebraska a holiday, kind of, and then, you know, a, a day to commemorate trees. And eventually every state in the union has taken it over. And um, so that has been just wonderful. And out of that grew another um, uh, certificate kind of thing you can get. Sorry, I'm out of words this morning. Called Tree City. And Arizona has 32 tree cities. And so it's just the value of the trees. And, you know, they provide shade, which helps with so many things. It creates habitats. It's great for the environment. It's good for your soul, the trees. You know, just the, they're beautiful. They're just a wonderful part of God's creation. So um, if you are interested in Arbor Day, do you know that there's a website, arborday.org, and if you join it, they will send you 10 free trees. Now, I'm sure they're tiny little trees, but how <laughs> cool is that? And um, if you're going to plant in Arizona, especially on the desert floor, they should be um, low-use water. And I have a wonderful resource for you, and it's the Mary Irish book called Gardening in the Deserts of Arizona Month by Month. And she has a whole chapter on trees. And every month she talks about a different part of trees. She might talk about the bark of the tree, the types of shade, what things you can grow under there, and, um, and in that kind of shade. So it's just a wonderful, beautiful resource. Pictures and talks about watering and pests that tree might have and ideal conditions. So this is a wonderful, wonderful resource. It's Gardening in the Deserts of Arizona by Mary Irish. And then if you want some really cool videos, go to Mesa, AZ, 
.org, or .gov, and look up Arbor Day. And our friend Donna De Francesco has beautiful um, resources there, including videos on how to plant a tree. It's counterintuitive how you plant a tree, right? Everybody thinks, well, most people think you plant it um, way down deep, but you actually have to leave it up a little bit. What do you call that part of the tree, Romy, where you, you want that? Is it like crown, maybe? Or? Canopy? No, the, You're talking uh, about where the uh, trunk meets the soil. Yeah, you don't want to bury it too deep. You have to leave a little bit of that so that it can breathe. But anyway, she has videos on there how to do that, resources. She has watering guides. She has types of trees that work well in the desert. So it's just, if you're into trees, that's great. If you're not, you should be. <laughs> so just great, great resources for date, Arbor Day. And they've done a lot of hybrid. You know, one of the uh, things people don't like about the natives is the, the thorns, you know, mesquite, mm -hmm. Palo Verde, ironwood. Uh, Texas ebony. A lot of these are very thorny bushes, but with the Palo Verde and the mesquites, they've got a number of them um, where they're thornless. You know, they've, they've kind of the hybrids, know, hybrid craft, draft, uh, yeah, crafting. Yeah. Well, this <laughs> this book she talks about that. Like, there's one chapter where she talks about all the different kinds of mesquites and then all the different types of Palo Verdes. And I was very um, encouraged here we have a texas ebony in our front yard and a they, couple and they have the most wicked wicked thorns but they now have them without thorns so if you're shopping for a tree make sure you take the time to make sure it doesn't have thorns you talked about 10 free trees yeah how do you do that well you just go to arborday.org and then to join to be a member it says you can get 10 free trees and you give them your area code and so they pick out trees that work in your area. Wow. Now I'm going to try it out this week because I just found it this morning but I was so excited I had to share it. So <laughs> we'll all kind of look into that together but it's right there on their website so we'll see. i get those and, ordered up. And that's arborday.org. Yes, sir. And I don't know why or how but it's always the last Friday in April mm -hmm. is when they celebrate Arbor Day. A million trees planted the first time they had it in 18, what, 72? Yep. So it's, a, what, a, it's 150 years almost? Mm -hmm. That is, right, right at yeah, 150 years Yeah, I think this is 150 date? years, yeah. Yeah, and the number of trees is just amazing. And, you know, to think that 32 of our cities in Arizona are actually certified tree cities. Which isn't an easy feat. There's a lot of things that go into that. Mm -hmm. You would think... Um, with the uh, Hacienda Preserve, Wickenburg would be one, but Wickenburg is yet to be certified a tree city. Pour it as quickly as you can. Hey, brothers, pour the wine. Pour it quickly once again. Hey, brothers, pour the wine. She's here at last, my one and only. Goodbye, friends, and don't be lonely when you see the way she walks. Hey, brother, pour the wine. Arizona's known for its five C's of industry. Copper, cattle, citrus, climate, and cotton. Wine kind of predates all those, though. We've got a wine historian joining us in the studio right now, Mr. Eric Berg. Welcome to the program. Thank you. And how far back does wine date uh, in Arizona? Well, you know, that was uh, when I first got interested in the subject. That is um, one of the, uh, the things I was interested in finding out. 
Um, if you look around, you'll see a lot of references to wine in Arizona going back 450 years to the 16th century with uh, Jesuits um, planting you know, vines at the missions to make wine for, for the celebration of Mass. Um, and that is, you know, a pretty broad, uh, widely repeated story here in Arizona. But, you know, if you know your Spanish colonial history, although there are Spanish groups moving through Arizona at that time, it takes about two years to uh, plant a vineyard, you know, and bring it to fruition and start producing fruit. And there's really no Spanish settlers, missionaries or anything else that are here that long in the 16th century. Um, so there definitely was not hey. any wine production then. But I got interested in when, when did it start? Uh, and I spent a lot of time uh, researching and going through archives and reading translated materials from the Spanish colonial period, uh, looking at archaeological reports. And after um, years of research on this, I can definitively tell you that when it comes to when the first wine was produced in Arizona, nobody really knows. <laughs> definitively. <laughs> yes. Definitively. Now, we, we can come up with some pretty good ideas. We know that uh, Kino, the famous Jesuit missionary that explored a lot of Arizona, um, he established a mission in Dolores back in the, the late 1600s, 1687, and that's uh, south of the border in northern Sonora. Uh, and he did plant vines there and make a little bit of wine. Uh, he probably did not, none of his missionaries at that time probably really planted any vines in Arizona. They didn't really get the missions going until later. Um, and if you look at Spanish colonial records from the late 1700s, which is really the, the, the peak of Spanish period here in Arizona, uh, most of the references is to how rare wine is. And uh, one of the reasons is, is because a lot of the Spanish sites were in the Santa Cruz River Valley, where it's very hot and humid, and the grapes would often rot before they could produce wine. But there probably was a little bit of wine making done in Arizona, probably in the very late 1700s, early 1800s, um, but probably not as much as, as people think. Rainbird and Ewing hadn't been established yet at that point. <laughs> yes. The, the, the water was kind of an issue. <laughs> yes. Yeah, water was an issue and just, uh, you know, too much heat and humidity. Even even today, the, the Spanish colonial sites are not in good wine grape growing places. But, but it is worth noting that just a little bit to the east in New Mexico, uh, missionaries did start uh, vineyards in kind of southern New Mexico around El Paso. Uh, local settlers would take cuttings of the vines from the missions. They would start their own vineyards for commercial purposes. And by the early 1700s, there was an estimated 250,000 vines along the Rio Grande from El Paso up to near present-day Las Cruces. So, and they, it was one of the largest wine-producing regions in North America, certainly the largest in what is today the United States. So you could certainly say that the American wine industry really got started um, in the Southwest. Uh, there's not a lot of wood, you know, in the Southwest to make barrels and vats. So in uh, along the Rio Grande, they would actually, uh, many times back then, they would take a big cowhide, you know, make a giant, you know, vat out of a cowhide, and they would actually crush the grapes and ferment it in the cowhide instead of a barrel. Yum. Yes. Now, if you've been to a wine tasting... Is that menudo? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it, you probably want a little menudo <laughs> after that. Yes. You need a bunch of that wine. Oh, to... <laughs> my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, if, if you've been to a wine tasting, you know, people like to have all these descriptive things. It tastes like raspberries and tobacco and stuff like this. And you often hear about a wine having notes of leather. Well, El Paso wine, you know, they <laughs> definitely had notes of leather. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yummy. That's, that's a revelation to me for a wine drinker. <laughs> yes. Oh. So not to distract from wine, but you know how they cheese was discovered? Hmm. Mm -mm. So you need rennet, which is a product found inside the stomach of an animal. And the people in the Sahara Desert would put milk inside the stomach of animals that they had harvested for eating. 
Well, that was their canteen, was the stomach right. of these animals. And after sloshing around in the stomach and they'd go to eat the drink their milk and it had all these curds in it, they discovered that's how cheese was <laughs> discovered. The original meat and cheese plate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I guess you could say that steak they, and wine go together because of that too. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> they, they were a much hardier bunch back then. <laughs> yes, they were. Yeah, you know, you find a hair in your wine and it could have come from the processing, so... <laughs> But That's some great. of the wine was probably actually pretty good from what, you know, the, the reports that came across. Well, I guess if you didn't have anything else, you know, yeah. to compare it to. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, as opposed to well water, it's a, not that hard of a choice. Now, it kind of went dead for a long time. And then it seems like about 30 years ago, uh, they got a wild hair down around Sonoida Elgin. And they said, well, let's try it again. And I mean, it's now it's a, it's a significant industry down there in Cochise County. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it, uh, there was actually a lot of winemaking uh, in the territorial period, too, you know, the Wild West days, and you know, we can talk about that a little bit, too. But yeah, in, in really, you know, the, the current modern wine industry started about 1979, 1980. That's when the first vineyard and winery started. And it kind of, you know, struggled along there for a while. But in the last 10, 15, 20 years, it, it has boomed. Oh, uh, um, yes, Sonoida, Wilcox, and the Verde Valley, too, is the other big, big well, location. Staying on the time frame, let's jump back to that territorial time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, there wasn't a lot with the Spanish missions. Now, you mentioned a, there there was, but it was more coastal, um, Los Angeles. You, mm-hmm. We don't think of L.A. as a big wine area. You think of <laughs> right. Northern California or, or, you know, starting at Paso Robles North mm-hmm. turns into wine country. But L.A. at the time... Yeah. Was, was the big wine producer. Yeah. If you'd been back in the Los Angeles Valley, you know, um, back in the early 1800s, you know, there, there weren't as many skyscrapers as there are now, obviously. <laughs> uh, and there was a mission there, San Gabriel Mission. And, you know, it's mostly at that time a mission and a, a few little settlers in that area. It's very rural. And San Gabriel Mission was one of the big wine producers uh, on the Spanish colonial frontier. It, it made not just wine for itself, but for the other missions. It, it had about, um, in the early 1800s, about 180 acres of vineyards for wine. And this was not just for the use of the church. It was also for sale to raise funds. And same thing as in El Paso, local settlers, they'd, they'd take cuttings from the vineyards, San Gabriel and other places. They'd start their own vineyards for commercial purposes. Uh, and that's really how the California wine industry got started. Um, and by, you know, the time of the Civil War, it was already one of our country's biggest wine producers. And a lot of that got shipped into Arizona, Mm -hmm. leather hide and all. (laughs) Yes. Well, now this time they're probably using (laughs) barrels, although they're also almost certainly using hides as well. But yeah, you know, we're so close, relatively speaking, it it still took a long time. Um, But once the trains came in, it was easier. Um, and so, yeah, in, in the, you know, the Wild West days of Arizona, you know, we, we watch the movies and the cowboys and the gunfighters, they go into saloon and they want beer and whiskey. You know, you've got the famous Whiskey Row up in uh, Prescott. And th- those were certainly popular drinks. But what I think people have forgotten today is that wine was also very popular on the Western frontier. And in fact, if you look at saloon ads in newspapers from the 1870s, 80s, that period, they're talking about... Um, you know, wine, that's really what they're promoting. That's really what sets them apart from other places. So, you know, White Earp and Doc Holliday, they might have, you know, might have had a nice glass of wine after the shootout at the OK Corral. I've never seen a John Wayne movie where someone walks <laughs> into a saloon and asks, may I see your wine list? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Bartender, this Chardonnay is too oaky. 
Yeah, that, that that's shooting words. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's not. We forgot it today, but it, it was a very popular drink. Some saloons even specialized in wine. And, and part of the reason for this um, is that a lot of the people that came west in this period, the late 19th century, they're immigrants, first or second generation sometimes, coming from many of the European countries where wine is a very important part of the culture. So it's not just having a fun time in a saloon. It's also just having a bottle of table wine at home with dinner. Um, so wine was a really important part of the culture for a lot of these these early immigrants. And um, there was they started to try to make some wine in Arizona back in that period. But most of the wine that was drank in Arizona probably did come in from California. There was also some winemaking in uh, Missouri and uh, New York, the Finger Lakes. Some of that would come over. Uh, and sometimes you would have even French wine. Uh, more often than not, there was another type of French wine, which was California wine with French labels, you know, kind of a, a hybrid wine, if you will. Um, but a lot of the wine in Arizona did come from California and particularly the Los Angeles Valley and uh, particularly the Cucamonga, Rancho Cucamonga. Uh, there's a really great book, Vanished Arizona, written by Martha Summerhays. She was an army officer's wife in Arizona back in the uh, 1870s, and she makes multiple references to Cucamonga wine. Uh, so I, I, you get the impression the only way she survived an Arizona summer was with Cucamonga wine from, from California. And, you know, it, it's, now that it's getting heat, you know, we're getting close to 100 again. This is a good time to start drinking. <laughs> get out. Well, what do you think she had for the pool? Was the Salt River running full time then? <laughs> yes, yeah, the Colorado, a little dip in the muddy Colorado and a nice glass of Cucamonga. You know, that's a perfect uh, afternoon in, in Arizona in the 1870s. So then the prohibition hits and pretty much kills what little wine industry growing Arizona had. Yeah, the um, you know, in, in Arizona, so they, they really started first trying to make wine in the Salt River Valley. Uh, you've got farmers in there from the 1860s onward, and they're mostly planting food crops, but they almost always planted grapes and orchards. Most of the grapes in the Salt River Valley were uh, table or raisin grapes, which, you know, is a different type of grape. And it actually became a big grape producer. But some of them naturally said, hey, we can grow table grapes here. Let's do wine grapes. You know, you can make more money off of wine, and everybody likes wine. And so they started experimenting with wine in really the early 1870s. But to be honest, they, they weren't very good at it. Um, the Salt River Valley is not the best place for wine grapes. Um, they, the, the end result was often something that was not real good, and they would often doctor it with sugar. So the Arizona wine tended to be a bit sweet and a bit high in alcohol. And in 1885, some of these Arizona winemakers, and they're usually farmers doing this on the side, they send a sample of their wine to a California wine merchant, hoping that the wine merchant will pick it up and distribute it around the West. And the wine merchant rejects the Arizona wine and says it's, it's too sweet and it's too high in alcohol. Well, the Phoenix Gazette newspaper heard about this, and it writes a little article standing up for the Arizona wine. And in the article, it says, well, we Arizonans, we like our wine a bit sweet. And furthermore, it is impossible to put too much alcohol in one bottle to displease the average Arizona drinker. So there, California. <laughs> um, but yes, going back to, uh, you know, prohibition in the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, you've got this prohibition movement across the United States. Much of it is uh, aimed at uh, beer and whiskey, but certainly wine as well. And it didn't help that a lot of the wineries in Arizona in the late 1800s, um, you know, were kind of not really great product and were associated with public drunkenness. And in 1897, there was uh, one Mesa, uh, winery in Mesa, the Jones Winery, that had a particularly bad reputation. And uh, in 1897, there was this big fight where a bunch of homeless men got in a brawl with some local people and one person was killed just outside the winery. And the next day, the Arizona Republican newspaper blamed it on Jones's beverage, uh, and they described his wine as, quote, a homicidal wine, 
one which has the tendency to make one lapse into forgetfulness of his duties to society, the church, and state. <laughs> so I, I've heard something to decide I, as a killer wine, but a homicidal wine, that's a... <laughs> so that, that did not help their cause. Now, Eric, I just got to ask, like, is, do you make a living researching the history of wine? Is this your vocation or is this a hobby? Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, this, this is, uh, this is more of a hobby. I'm a, uh, software engineer for, uh, Intel. Okay. Um, but you know, when you've just been writing code for 60 hours a week and just fighting some big bug, you know, a glass of wine is just sort of a natural partner to that. And you've published. Yes. Um, this, this research, um, I used to be a wine drinker, but, uh, or, I mean a beer drinker, but my girlfriend is very much into wine. So we started going to wineries and I got interested in the history. Um, I've been researching and writing and talking about Arizona history for the last 20 years, um, was president of the Grand Canyon Historical Society for a while. Oh, and this, yeah. Well, we got to have this guy <laughs> yeah. back. Oh, man. But um, this, uh, my research, um, I spent a couple of years researching this and did an article for the uh, Journal of Arizona History back in uh, the fall of 2018, and also wrote a history section for a, a great book that's out on Arizona wine by uh, my friend, the photographer, Janelle Bonifield. It's called Arizona Uncorked, and it's just beautiful pictures of the vineyards and the wineries and the winemakers and stories about all of them. Um, and I did some of the writing for that as well. Well, very good. We've got one more segment right after this. And the wide open know the pain of street singing like the door-to-door salesman knows the pains of bell ringing strange situation Talking with Arizona wine historian Eric Berg, we've been covering a lot of the stuff that predates uh, the century, but let's you know, with with the time we have left, let's get forward to the '70s and the reintroduction and and how that got started. Yeah, the um, you know Arizona wine industry after prohibition, and, and in Arizona we actually went dry uh, in 1915 based on a vote in 1914. So we we even went dry before the rest of the nation 1920, and that that killed the wine industry that was just starting to get started and getting better and better. And for decades afterwards. Uh, nobody in Arizona really even thought to try wineries again. It bounced back in California and other states, but but not here. And in the late 1960s, a guy by the name of Dr. Gordon Dutt, who was a soil scientist, um, came to Arizona. He had been working the last few years at UC Davis in California, and so he was very familiar with um, California vineyards and soil. He came to uh, the University of Arizona in Tucson to really focus on how to increase agriculture in desert regions. And as he's traveling around Arizona, he's, he's realizing there's a lot of places here that are really good for wine growing. And why are there no wineries here? So um, as a test, he uh, put this little test vineyard up at the uh, U of A's test ranch near Oracle, planted a few wine grapes, had to wait two years to do a very minor harvest. He made the wine himself at home and sampled it, and it was surprisingly good. Uh, news of this got out, and he got some funding to basically study winemaking, the potential for winemaking across the entire Southwest. And in 1980, he did this big report called the Four Corners Report that basically said, if you plant the right grapes in the right location, and that's what people were missing up until then, Arizona and the Southwest has the capacity to be a really great wine producer. And he was not just a, a researcher, he was also interested in the uh, the business side. And in 1979, one of his test vineyards for the study was on the historic Babacarmari Ranch that we were talking about a moment ago uh, down in Senoida. And he actually leased the land and started Arizona's first modern commercial wine vineyard, um, uh, Senoida Vineyards, uh, Viva Senoida, back in 1979. Uh, other people came in, started vineyards nearby, and then they all got together and formed Senoida Vineyards Winery. Uh, with Dutt as winemaker a couple of years later. And that's what really gets the wine industry started. The, um, the other important person I should note this time is a guy by the name of Bob Webb. Uh, he was a uh, Navy pilot, originally from uh, Arizona. Um, he was stationed around San Francisco 
during the Vietnam War and so got an appreciation for wine, came back to Arizona, started a hobby shop in Tucson, got interested in home winemaking, and in 1980, he started his own winery, the first modern winery in Arizona. Uh, because there were no Arizona wine vineyards at the time, he brought in grapes from uh, California, New Mexico. But a couple years later, he did start his own vineyard near Wilcox, which is now a major producing area. And in 1986, he opened a new, much larger uh, tasting room and winery along I-10, kind of southeast of Tucson. And if you drive along I-10, southeast of Tucson, near Vail, if you look north of the interstate, there's this big, white, sort of Spanish mission-looking building. And that's Webb's old winery, which at the time was the largest in Arizona. And those two guys, Dutt and Webb, uh, really got it, uh, got it going. And today there's – can you even keep up <laughs> No, how many there are? I actually – no, I, I, I've, I've sort of given up. Um, and it's hard to count wineries because sometimes there's multiple brands under a single, you know, production unit. Uh, some people have a license and a uh, already a name, but they're not in production yet. Uh, so you can vary the count depending on how you count. But by my reckoning, I know of at least 60 distinct, unique operations that are producing right now and another half a dozen that are in the works. And it's just going just gonna to keep growing. It's really in the last 10, 15 years has really exploded. And as a agricultural crop, it's a fairly low water use. Yeah, and you wouldn't think so, right? You know, it's this big, juicy fruit. It's leafy. You'd think it uses a lot of water, but it's it's considerably less than, say, corn and alfalfa. Um, maybe comparable to to cotton, but you know, it drinks a lot better than cotton. So it's uh, it's you know, it's it's really a very good crop for Arizona. And do you have a, a favorites Arizona? I know that's probably <laughs> hard to to pick out, but uh... yeah, I don't. I, I need to be careful to get myself in trouble here. Actually, I've gotten to know a lot of the winemakers, and they're all a great bunch. Um, you know, uh, it's sort of interesting. There's the three different wine regions, and they all kind of have their own little specialties. Um, it seems to me and to a lot of people that Cochise County uh, does really well with Syrah and Petite Syrah, a type of wine grape that produces a nice, big, rich uh, red wine. Um, and I really like Syrah, particularly from Cochise County. Uh, so there's a lot of great Syrahs coming out of there. In fact, the first two Arizona wines to score a 90 um, on one of the major critic uh, reviews was uh, a couple of Syrahs, one from uh, Page Spring Cellars uh, in the Verde Valley and the uh, the other from uh, Burning Tree, and both were grapes, though, that came from Wilcox. So some of the Syrah coming out from Wilcox right now can, you know, and when it's produced and, and really made well, it, it can stand, in my opinion, and maybe I've got a little bit of Arizona bias, but it's as good a Syrah as you'll find anywhere. Um, but also, you know, Petite Syrah, um, Grenache, uh, Viognier, those are also all very popular. And we talked a little bit about it yesterday, and then and Rosie mentioned it during the break, just what the wine industry, how it changes towns. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Wilcox... It looks a lot different than it did 10 years ago, the downtown. And then Cottonwood. You know, we did two Eagle Scout projects in Cottonwood in the 90s and thought, man, this place is a dump. Went through there about four or five years ago and we're like, holy smokes. Yes. <laughs> Where did this come from? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it has really turned it around. And, and Cottonwood is the perfect example. Um of what the wine industry can can do and change the local market.